stories as points of connection. So like stories are the way that we connect with, with God, with his world, with one another, and stories convey meaning. So stories shape the way we move in God's world. And um, we can see this at like a microcosm sort of level where an individual will will have certain stories as a part of their their day-to-day mode. And those stories will either chain them to lies or they'll bind them to, to freedom. Um, and then also at a macrocosmic level where people throughout human history have used stories as a way to connect themselves with the world that God has made. And even if they don't know God um, in this direct way, they still use stories um, to, to make sense of things and to draw out meaning in, in the world. The Commonplace is a podcast for the new homeschooling mom delighted by the ideals and principles of a classical Charlotte Mason education. But who feels unsure of how to get started on the practical side of nourishing a soul on the good, the true, and the beautiful? I hope you find camaraderie here as we get our bearings in the world of old ideas and old books, of wisdom and virtue, and of the means of grace by which God works in this world through the commonplaces, which includes your home. So, if you're like me, trying to offer your children an education unlike your own, and wondering if you can create an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life of such richness, I'm here to tell you, I think you can. I'm your host, Autumn Kern, and I'm pleased to welcome you to The Commonplace. Welcome back to The Commonplace. My name is Autumn Kern, and whenever I start a podcast like that, it means that I am not alone. I am joined today by a very special guest, my friend Emily. Emily, will you say hello to The Commonplace listeners? Hey, Commonplace. Good to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. So Emily and I have known each other for a bit now. She was one of my early early cohorts for what was Patreon back then, but is now the Common House. And so I feel like I've been able to engage in these ideas with you for a bit, but I don't know if you remember, it may not have been your very first comment, but it's what I always remember. One of your first comments in Patreon was um, you disagreed with something that I said in the podcast, but you used Pilgrim's Progress to defend yourself. Do you remember this? (laughs) I do remember this, yes. (laughs) And as soon as I read it, I just knew, I was like, oh, I like this woman. (laughs) Like, I just need to know more about what she said. And thankfully, we've continued this conversation, all these ideas in classical education and in story particularly. So whenever Emily leaves a comment, I just want everyone to know it's always so wise and insightful and beautiful. And it adds a new layer or it clarifies my thinking. And particularly when it's about story, no one comments in Common House about story the way Emily does. So as I was thinking about what sort of angle could I add in this whole season about classical education, I know that story is the one that for a lot of moms, we're like, yes, easy sell read great stories with my kids. I know we need great stories. But when we actually get into it, we start to have these questions like, what do I do with magic? How do I explain what's real? What do I do if my child just constantly says, I don't want to play this. I don't want to read this. None of this is true. How do I think about form? All of a sudden, there are a lot of questions about literature that we didn't know we needed to ask. And so I've brought Emily here because this is her thing. And I'm so excited to just (laughs) unleash her in conversation to share these lovely thoughts. And so to kick us off, Emily, if you will tell us a little bit about you and your family and then how you came in through the classical wardrobe. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, I live in South Georgia with my husband and my four kids. They uh, range in age from six down to nine months. And uh, very 
formative part of my story was that I was in the Navy for six years. Um, so straight out of college, I commissioned as a nuclear surface warfare officer, and I served on ships. And then I went and I learned how to run the Navy's um, nuclear power plants on aircraft carriers. And I bring this up because it was while I was in the Navy that I fell through the classical wardrobe. Um, so as you can imagine, the, the nuclear training was pretty vigorous. And like probably a lot of y'all, I was um, schooled in kind of this normal mode, which is really test heavy. And I did a lot of um, very successful cramming, brain dumping. And so I got to this high profile job where I needed to really not only learn and score well on tests, but then retain that knowledge and be able to use it. And I had a bit of a crisis um, because I felt like I struggled to really know things at this deep level. And it was right around that time that I read The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. And in that book, Dreher has a chapter about classical education, um, kind of specifically distinguishing it from a lot of modern secular or Christian schools. And so the light bulb went off. I started to pull the string. And then I soon found out about the liberal arts tradition and these deep ways to know things, to apprehend truth. And so that just totally sparked my imagination. Um, I've been learning about classical education ever since. And so that brings me to today, where I'm at my house with my four kids, um, classically educating and really loving it. I love that. Your background story is the most wild for any mother teacher that I know. <laughs> <laughs> And they were in the Navy doing nuclear things. And yet I love that because I do think one part of story, and I think this is partly because of like the Mason Instagram world. Um, a lot of times it seems like it's just literature in a Mason education when actually a child should care with the breadth of God's world, like all of the things that he's made. Um, and yeah. so I love that because math and what we would think modern science, the way we would use the word science, all these things also declare the glory of God and also help us to know him and become like him. And so I just love that you were doing nuclear things while you were reading and then you found the tradition and it fits so perfectly with this whole view of a person and of living and everything. So I'm so glad you got to share that. Okay, so yeah. onto story. Can we start with why stories are important? Yes, absolutely. I, I like to think of stories as points of connection. So like stories are the way that we connect with, with God, with his world, with one another. And, um, and stories convey meaning. So stories shape the way we move in God's world. And um, we can see this at like a microcosm sort of level where an individual will will have certain stories as a part of their their day-to-day -day mode and those stories will either chain them to lies or they'll bind them to to freedom um and then also at a macrocosmic level where people throughout human history have used stories as a way to connect themselves with the world that god has made and even if they don't know god um in this direct way they still use stories um to to make sense of things and to draw out meaning in in the world yeah no, absolutely. I think um, one thing that I've really found interesting in coming into the classical world is the shift from being rational brain oriented people to actually being heart oriented, like we're lovers and we chase the idea of the good life, which we usually tell to ourselves in story. And so the stories that we build out, particularly for our children in the early years, but even the ones we tell ourselves, both that we read and then we actually tell ourselves about the life we're leading are incredibly formative in the direction that we move. And of course, that comes out of our fingertips, like you said, into how we practically moving God's world. Um, so I love that idea of connection. And we know, of 
course, the science of relations about finding those connections and story is such a unique way to do that. Um, Mason particularly recommends a number of types of stories for young kids. And it's kind of a very broad span when you think usually about like children's books and that's just it for kids. And Mason comes in and she gives these heavy hitters. She's like, kids need the Bible straight up. They need myths. They need fairy tale. Can you explain a little bit why she thinks this is so important and maybe how these work together? Because it could feel like to a mom, this could be confusing if I read the Bible, but then I read a myth and then I read a fairy tale. How will my kids know what's heads or tails? Yeah, I think they all build off of one another really beautifully. And so we, like as, as, as Christian homes, we start and we're reading the Bible all the way through. But then once you start to introduce myth and you start to introduce fairy tale, um, the world starts to expand. And the, our ideas of what's possible in the world start to expand in really, really profound ways. And as you're encountering these larger than life stories, you, you slowly start to realize that so much of the Bible is larger than life. So much of God and his plan is far beyond anything that we could imagine. And yeah. so just that those, those things revolving around one another and getting deeper and deeper into story helps you get deeper into scripture and helps you get deeper into just God's God's world that he's laid out for us and to understand the plot of, of redemption, of salvation so much more fully. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. It's one of the reasons why I love Narnia so much is that I think it brings that meta narrative into such clear view in a way. I mean, even Lewis says, like you see Aslan here so you can learn to see him in your world. It's just a little bit um, more clear. And I, I just know that Aslan has always pulled on my heartstrings so much and making me long for Christ. Like that idea of scripture being put into story that way. Or even today we were talking to our kids about how all good stories are based off of this story. Like they all yeah. echo the, the story, the themes in, in scripture. Um, so I think when parents then start to go looking in these categories, we have a couple of ditches. So in the classical world, we can assume that just because something is old, it means it's good. In the Mason world, we get really scared by this idea of twaddle. And so we go around looking for book lists that we can follow and this rule and this rule. And can someone help me perfectly figure out what not to do rather than learning to love the real thing, the good story. So I'm wondering if you can kind of break down for us, what is the form of a good story? What is it that's attractive, that's beautiful, that speaks to the soul? Yeah, I'll start with what a story is, because um, I think sure. that can be even like helpful to weed it out at this, this fundamental level. So a story, I like to think of it anytime you have a person um in a world interacting with that world so we often describe that as character setting plot um but that that's what a story is and then a good story is one that inspires us moves us delights us and so you have um you have paul in first corinthians i think it's chapter 10 verse 23 where he talks about all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. And, mm -hmm. and so story, all stories are fair game. Our, our God is the word. So anything that's conveyed in this medium of words, he's involved in it in some way, even if it's so remote that it just seems like that's the foil for his plan. Um, it's it's mm -hmm. the opposite, you know, but there you can, you can really find Christ in, in most anything. If you look and you dig heart deep enough, um, but then once you start to appreciate the, um, the impact that stories can have on your soul, um, then you start to want to really imbibe good ones, to, to only go looking mm -hmm. for the best. Um, and I've been thinking a lot lately about the Holy Spirit and the role of the soul as we encounter stories. 
Um, and an inspiring, an inspiring story has been, um, has been something that's been on my mind a lot is, as we think about like the, the vision of the good life and how we move in the world. It's only when we're inspired that we're going to act in one way or another. And so we want those things that are inspiring us to be, to be good, to be beautiful, to be true. Um, and it's just the nature of our fallen world that some things are, are more that than others. And so um, I think story operates on this soul plane where we're, we're putting our own life on hold and we're entering into something that's deeper, that's affecting the way we feel, the way we move. And so all of that comes into play when we step into a library with our kids and they're showing us this or that. Um, and I think another thing that's been helpful as I in, in, you know, encounter this choice or that choice in the library, I, I like to think of, does it, um, does it exist to entertain or does it exist to engage? Um, because in our modern sphere, there's a ton of content that's out there that seems like it's just meant to make money um, and just to sell books and it's kind of ripping off of something else that maybe in, it, to begin with was creative. Um, and we can we can kind of feel that out in our own families and with our own ways of encountering those things. But um, there's something to be said for a really beautifully creative, deep work of art. And so picking up a book and even asking, like, this, is this operating on that plane or is it operating on more of the entertainment, um, something you'll spend your time and not get a lot of return for. Sounds so much like Mason, like nothing happens without a living idea. Like you're using an inspiring idea, but like you can't even yeah. have a train without first some sort of inspiring living idea that has to catch the attention and the desire to act. Um, I think that's really great. I want to ask you, kind of getting down a little into the muddled weeds as it happens. It's, it is easy sometimes, I think, to find the good seed in something. Like I know this, this trips me up sometimes. There are the, the obvious categories of things where I'm like, this, no, this is either just completely empty, it's actually twaddle, or this is harmful, this is not happening. But then I can get into things like Disney where I can see the threads of fairy tale. I could, if I tried, bring out gospel themes in certain characters or certain behaviors and actions that happen. But overall, I think the form is a little too cartoonish. And so I think about Mason's idea of aesthetics and beauty and making sure that things are lovely when they're presented. Um, what do you do in those kind of murky waters? Because I think that is where I've seen, at least within Common House conversations and messages mm -hmm. that I've received through the commonplace, that's where people get stuck. Where it's like, well, I could see this character lay down their life for someone. I could, I could really push that but they have this music. And I know this is actually a comment you made recently that I would love for you to talk about with Disney is that it's musical. So they're sharing story in the, in the music mainly. Um, how yeah. do you kind of weed through that? Do you have any sort of, um, just any sort of like counsel or wisdom for someone trying to move through this for the first time? Yeah, I like to think about where the story is pointing. Um, I think that okay. the Disney stories particularly, they take these classic fairy tales that are, they're working on this, um, this mode of symbol and and these mythical aspects. And then they, they have like this modern spin on it. And oftentimes that modern spin is pointing towards the self, like pointing towards the character and their own desires. And and so oftentimes, depending on what the story is, I'll steer clear of it just because it's, it's really, rather than a story that's pointing towards something greater, it's something transcendent, which we know down the line that's, that's Christ, like that transcendence that's pointing towards self-fulfillment or whatever else that may be. And it's not, yeah, it's not inspiring us in the way that we want to go. And mm -hmm. yeah, like the, the comment about um, 
about music and Disney, I, my daughter, every single time we step into a library, wants to check out the Disney books. And I do not want to read the Disney books in my house because they just, especially I think about them as compared to the, the movies themselves. So this is this is how I explain it to her. I'm like, this, this is not the original form of this art. This is something else. And so much of the art of a Disney film is, um, is, is in the music, like it is a musical. And so you're telling the story with these songs, um, with this action, and the book that we're holding in our hands right now is just a really simplified, dumbed-down version of that. That doesn't really that doesn't really move you as you read it. And so we've we I will read the the books in the library. We just won't bring them into our house because um, I want that our house to be a place where um, only the the good sorts of stories that we're kind of discussing exist. So. Not all Disney movies yeah. um, will let you down, but there are, there are definitely some. Yes, that's true. And I think even that is a really helpful point when the danger of drawing the twaddle lines or trying to figure out what is the do not do list is that you can, you lose the, you lose the need to learn to be wise and to actually assess and discern. If you can just be like, we just don't do this at all then you actually could possibly miss something good. Like you're saying, not all are going to deliver the same thing. Um, I think that's really good. We have a similar rule when we come across books like that at uh, library sales or things that where you can get them for 50 cents, that they can be a car book for a short time and then they'll just disappear. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the rule, but they don't come in the house. And so I know that one thing you, you call yourself as a home librarian and you have been kind to lend from the Thomas Library to the Kern family. It is something that we have in common where we want to collect and pass on the books that need to be shared, even if they're hard to find, if we're going to spend a lot of work to do it. Could you share a couple of your principles for building your home library? Because I know you've put a lot of thought into this. Yeah, I love to fill my library with beautiful books. And so any and all books that are on the shelves, the illustrations, because I love picture books really specifically. So um, the illustrations, yes, yeah. I have like this whole huge curated library of picture books and all kinds of different categories too. And so one of the things I love doing with the kids at our meal times is just pulling one out, reading through it together. Um, and so yeah i usually kind of look for like the, the the words being poetic or being rich and then the illustrations being good but i have all kinds of books about like you know my nuclear background sciencey topics and that like educate us about mm -hmm. things in this huge spectrum um but for all of them they are they are they're worth the while they're really going to add something to our life whatever that might be and they're going to give us things to think about and things to chew on for a while yeah. Emily really is the picture book queen. So I have interviewed Emily before, but it was uniquely a Patreon common house perk. And it was about this thing she created called the liturgy binder. Because when a lot of people come in through the wardrobe, they start to realize that your repeated actions, your practices pull on your heart. They aim you towards a certain telos, a certain end. And so moms start thinking like, what can I do in my home to have these embodied living ideas? And Emily let me know about this thing she created called Liturgy Binder. And so that resource still exists in Common House. But whenever we hit any sort of liturgical season and people are asking for picture books, Emily always has the list. <laughs> it is actually one of your books in life. You have a picture book for any time of year, anything. And I love it. I am not a picture book queen. I like them, but I just spend more time on different books. And so I'm always so grateful to get your list right around like Advent 
right before Theophany. Like I can, I can kind of go through your list really quickly and get some new books from us for the library. So anyways, okay, so this is great. I think one category for moms that can be a little bit tricky is the idea of fairy tales, the use of enchantment and magic in story. And I think that like you were saying earlier, you were entering into another world. You are being shown rather than told certain things about reality. And it's pointing you in a direction. And I like to use the language of it lifts the veil a little bit. So we live in this immaterial reality and story allows us to kind of break through that a little bit. But moms have concerns. They have questions about the magic and the enchantment. And so I would love if you could kind of speak to why this is so important for the imagination. And particularly in our modern way, we often think that you can just catechize moral instruction. You can just teach rules. But really, in the classical tradition, we would say it's more about um, garnering affections and training appetites. So if you could kind of speak to how enchantment helps form that in a child. Yeah. So I think we can even we can even see this in ourselves when we're encountering a story. It's it's moving us. We like really care about the character. We want them to succeed. We want the evil to fail. And so story already is putting us in this plane where we're dealing with things that that are shaping us, that are forming us. And then with the magic coming in, magic is something otherworldly. It's something that especially in our modern mind, we think like we don't encounter that on a day-to-day basis. Like that's not measurable. What do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the more I just trying to be, trying to be open to wonder, trying to be open to like the grandeur of God's world, magic. Um, it's a, it's a really small and otherworldly way to describe the grandeur of God and to describe um, the miraculous, the, the sacramental, and God has does so much um, in our world that we can't explain and that we can't measure. And so and when we look for reality to only be measurable, to only be something that we can we can see and we can point to, then God himself, who we can't see and we can't point to in a in in the way that Thomas could when he stuck his finger in Jesus' side, um, becomes inscrutable and so magic really like you said it lifts the veil it gives us this opening to entertain worlds and possibilities that are bigger than us and that transcend reality and breakthrough Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think that it's so important in in actually accepting the unseeable parts of God's reality around us. I have been using the idea of magic as almost, it almost operates like grace. I've had some pushback on that, but the idea that it brings order from chaos, it makes things lovely and beautiful. It heals things and it works in a way that we can't see, but often through seemingly ordinary means like uh, Chesterton has this thing. I think it's Chesterton, although I, you would probably know if it was Tolkien because I know you know him, but um, where he talks about how <laughs> a wee bit about how, um, <laughs> that there are, there's still natural law in a fairy tale. So like magic would never make two plus two equal five, but you could mm. actually understand like a tree that bears magical fruit, you know, for a maiden who who's yeah. in need or something like that. And so there's still like a law to the magic in proper enchantment and fairy tale, which I thought was really helpful um, because of course there are plenty of things you wouldn't want to bring into your home that would fall under the category of magic in a bookstore. Um, but yeah. in this particular way, the classic fairy tale way, 
I do think it helps um, a child grow comfortable with that reality that they can't see. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't have any facts on this. I just have like kind of a gut guess that the reason why across traditions, there's a mass exodus from the church when children grow up and leave the home and go to school is because we've trained them and catechized them in schools to only trust what they can measure with their five senses. And yet the yeah. Christian faith asks for something very different. Um, have you, have you thought about this? Yeah. Yeah. So Tolkien, Tolkien talks about also the, the children and Walter Longgren Jr. also does a really good job of kind of spelling this out where yeah. you, the, ch the child, especially when they're, when they're young and they're at this, um, this, this place in their life where they're closer to God in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Like they, yeah. they know that evil is real. Like magic isn't all good. There is black magic. There is darkness in our world too. And I always think about Tolkien's quote where children know that dragons are real. And so having having a dragon in the story having the magic in the story actually helps the world make more sense to them because they yeah. are not at the stage where they're adults yet they don't feel like they control and everything in their world or that they can and so they're not they're not struggling with the same things we are and um especially in stories where the good triumphs over the evil like they they inherently because we're made in god's image they know that that's the way reality should go and so it almost like strengthens mm -hmm. their trust and it strengthens their faith and their ability to to look to their father's story and see that same thing play out. Oh yeah, I have goosebumps because they do. They absolutely believe that good will triumph. It has to. Like that is the way it goes. It's like it's etched into our souls. It's part of being an image bearer. Um, you need to know that there is a Saint George. Um, I know yes. Lewis has that whole thing about uh, real stories. I'm sure you've read this one as well. Where um, the I, I believe it he uses women's magazines as his example, but we could use Instagram or the news cycle or anything that how often people are actually confused by what is considered a quote, real story. But in a fairy tale world, nothing is confusing. Like, you know what is right and you know what is wrong. You think you're just telling a lovely classic fairy tale, but actually you're dealing with epistemology and morality and theology. Like, but it's very mm -hmm. clear. Vice is grotesque and virtue sparkles. Um, you're not you're not kind of muddled the way we can be in our real stories. But this yeah. kind con this concept of real yeah. is something you've talked about in Common House, and I would love to hear you talk about it a bit more because we have often the question, "What do I do with a quote realist child? The the child mm -hmm. who says, well, dragons aren't real. Well, that's not real. You can't go to another world through a wardrobe.' Um, how do you speak to your children about these things? Because I know you use the language of incarnation. I would just love to have you explain to us how you engage with young children when you have questions like this. Yeah, one thing I always, I kind of like, first we'll put the child back, back on their own feet. Like when you say real, what do you mean? To have them really think about mm -hmm. that. Like what is reality or or truth, or like something isn't true. Well, like what, what do you mean by that? Because I found that oftentimes children are not asking the question of like, oh, can I go find this in my backyard? Or will I encounter this in my day-to-day -day life? They're asking a deeper question. They're asking this question of, can I trust this story? Can I open myself mm. up to this story? And can I let it change me and affect me? Or do I need to put the story in a box? And so often the way we talk about stories, like, oh, this part's real, this not real it's it just it totally cuts us off from the work that that story is designed to do on us and in us mm -hmm. and so like I mentioned before I think of stories as having um having their own their own world and yeah. there are things that happen in this world and if the story is good and it's true then there's a lot of parallels between what happens in the world of the story and then what happens in our world and mm -hmm. their um there is this this transcendence that exists 
exists there where the story is able to open up all of these apertures for truth. And then um, when it comes to whether or not the story is true, especially like stories like St. George and the Dragon, is it true? What's well, it's truer than true. It's pointing to this great truth, to God's truth. And so I use that truer than true language a lot with my kids, especially after having laid that brain, groundwork of what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about reality? Um, and the story itself is not something that you can, you can put your fingers on. Like it's in this book. It doesn't, it doesn't come into your world until you read it or until you hear it. And so it's already more intangible. And I, and I think that that like kind of understanding that I wouldn't express that specifically to my kids, but understanding that as somebody who is in, encountering stories in my own right and with little ones, like knowing that that the story is different and in a lot of ways greater than just just our own experience. I think Lewis talks about how he, um, I don't think it's Newton, yeah, Newton, he's, he's able to see so much farther and accomplish so much because he's standing on the back of all these giants. Like story is okay, yeah. like mm -hmm. books themselves, they're a technology and they allow us to, to spread things beyond ourselves even. So this, I love thinking about sort of the like nitty gritty stuff like that. I think that's great. I stole the truer than true from you. Like I, you left I'm that so in a comment. I was like, that's did. So perfect way to do that. I mean, it's come out in commonplace content. So, you know, it's all there, the realer than real, truer than true. But I got that, that kind of, I use it almost like a hook or a peg so that when I get these questions, I can like latch onto it and then keep going. Like it kind of gets my mind working in that direction. And I think yeah. even if, like you said, a mom isn't going to necessarily use that full explanation with a young child, I think mm -hmm. actually moms mm -hmm. don't understand how to think yeah. about this. Like, oh, okay, yeah, Narnia isn't, I'm gonna just use Narnia again. Narnia isn't real, but I see that it's saying real things, but like just hearing that and being like, now I understand it. So then depending on the child, being able to engage, hopefully, and build out that conversation, I think will be yeah. really helpful. Yeah, I think that, so I think about Mason here too, where she, hmm. she has her metaphor of the feast and the children are coming to the feast and they're going to take from it what they need. And so when we, when we're reading stories with our kids, there's probably something in the back of our mind as a mom where we're like, you need to take this away. But like, if we as moms could just keep our mouth shut and let the story do its work on our children. Um, that's a really yep. beautiful thing too, because it's they're they're able to take from it what they need, and it's often not what we expect. Um, mm -hmm. So I think of that, and just in, in also in in talking about if something's real or if if we can encounter it in our world or not. Um, if the child isn't asking, like not even going there, and then if they go to that to that plane, then pointing them like beyond towards towards the incarnation, towards Christ. Um, and then there's one more thing that I have to share with Carmen House. So I yes. heard um, from Hans Forsma. I don't know if you've, you know, general audience members familiar with him, but he's a theologian and he wrote a book called Heavenly Participation. And he is, he is like the voice on sacramental, yep. larger than life, God breaking through to our day-to-day -day reality, Christianity. And somebody asked him one time, how do I impart this vision of the world, this sacramental God existing in all things? Um, how do mm -hmm. I impart that to my kids? And he said, no, don't use the word just. And he means don't, don't say, mm -hmm. oh, it's just a frog. It's just, it's just the sky. It's just this or that. Um, because nothing is just itself. It's always connected to Christ. It's always pointing to him in its, its very being what it is. And so that has been a huge peg for me that I've carried with me 
I'm a grouch about it when I hear that my is. husband say Jess, he oh, knows. Okay. He's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I wrote that. That is so good. I have his book behind my head. I know exactly where it is because it's on my to-read yeah. list this year, <laughs> the Heavenly Participation <laughs> book. Um, that's a fantastic answer. I love that. It actually, so I would love for my kids to see the world like Gerard Manley Hopkins did. I would love to see the world like Gerard Manley Hopkins. So we memorized his poetry together because I just want that to be shaping out when we're in the woods and when they're looking at things that this is, this is the verbiage they have, the language they have. Oh, please go. Tell me more. Yes. This reminds me. I took a class last January with Christine Perrins and the class was all about poetry and the Psalms and the imagination. And one of, one of my huge takeaways from this class is we encountered this, actually my first exposure to Hopkins was in her class. And, um, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, like the, the imagination piece really came through as like a major point of mission for, for Christians, for, Mm -hmm. for, for parents, for Christian parents, the more we're able to strengthen the imagination of our children and build out their imagination, the more, the the stronger their, their faith will be and the stronger their relationship with Mm -hmm. God. And so this is like one of the things that fairy tales do indispensably, like there is nothing that will strengthen and expand your, your imagination and your wonder, like a fairy tale. And the more we read fairy tales as a family, the more we encounter them in our own right. We're just that much more familiar with the, the plot of God's story. And we have it driven home to us again and again, um, these truths in, in a way that really moves our hearts. It actually is like perfect into the next thing I wanted to ask you, because you and I both um, really love liturgical living in the home, like the embodiment mm-hmm. of ideas. And one thing about um, the... Well, just the use of the imagination, I always think about it around the time of Advent and Christmas tide. So like we are entering into the season of preparation and then festivity, and it seems to be the easiest part of the calendar for people to kind of get going on, right? Like we have enough to kind mm-hmm. of start knowing how to, to bring this into the home. And yet a lot of times in the Christian world, I hear a lot of emphasis on mom, you don't have to do anything extra this Christmas season. Like it's kind of a, a thing that really gets me each year starting in November because I think about how we are building out the imagination of of a child during all the year but particularly this unique time of year like you have these unique times compared to ordinary times so that you can bring the fullness of things in but um I I always think about the ability to bring in all five senses to change the home to change the sounds to change the books to act out the story as it is and what that does to cement the allegiance of a child to understand what's actually going on. And if we think about like the moral and mythic imaginations, those are the metaphors that children use to understand what's happening in their life. It helps that narrate like their narration to themselves about their life. Um, And I just, I just think that we have such a chance as moms to build out that imagination in the home. And so I really want to talk to you a little bit about embodiment and learning and particularly through literature because having lovely, lovely thoughts is only like one part of what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to give them these ideas. We do want them to actually act lovely in God's world. And so it's necessary that our thoughts and our loves and our actions are all working in this harmonious way. And so can you kind of break down how we can live out story in our homes, whether that be the overarching church calendar, like liturgical year, or just the stories that we love? How can we bring those into the rhythms of our home? Yeah, I think, Autumn, you do a, a fantastic job of actually bringing, like, stories themselves into the home. There was this one point when Autumn 
dressed up as Narnia and had a battle with another family. And I was like, that is a different level. That's amazing. And um, I love Narnia, Emily. <laughs> I love how much you love Narnia. It's made me love it more. <laughs> uh, and I, so with, with, so our, so my, my incarnating stories does not go to that level, but I, the, the, the church year in the liturgical calendar, which you brought up, is so rich and so deep. And so there's, there's kind of these two categories of that. There's the temporal calendar, which is where we follow the life of Christ in any given season and cycle. And then there's the sanctoral calendar. And I think both of them are really helpful. So the temporal calendar, when, when you live into that, you have this chance to embody and really put yourself in the middle of the action with Christ as he's born as you prepare for his birth and advent, he's born as he walks through um, the passion during Holy Week, especially if you're doing that in a church setting um, where yes. you're you're really going and you're gathering with community. And my favorite example of this is Monday Thursday services where there's foot washing and you get to hear the story of the Last Supper and you get to um, then take off your shoes and your socks and walk up and feel the humility and feel the, the discomfort that comes with getting your feet washed in it. It really does form us in, in deep ways and it connects us to our church body. It connects us then hopefully to our community as we go out and we're just that much more inspired to to move in God's world after after the example of his son. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the temporal calendar is so rich and it continues to just be new every single year and every season and, and speak into the lives of everybody in the home. And then the sanctoral calendar is the, the calendar of the saints. And so you've got the different um, different feast days that commemorate people who've lived in, in, um, and followed God in various places and times. And I think that this is also a really important piece of encountering story, encountering stories of the faith, especially because when you start to, I, I don't know very many saints, but I learned about them as I see their names on the calendar, like, who is this person? What have they done? And We'll, we'll look those stories up and kind of just dwell on them as a family. And you start to get this idea of how many different types of people God has sent out to do his work and how different that work looks depending on the mm. person and their context and their call. And so all of this, I like to think of the, the sanctoral calendar is like each day you have this like beautiful shard of glass. And when you combine them, you see an image of Christ, the incarnation in this stained glass window. And you see how many different ways there are that Christ has, um, you know, sent out his hands and his feet and like this, this big full picture that helps you equip you then as a follower to, to seek after him and, and to be a part of that window and to be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. For a mom who who just heard that and thinks, wow, that's amazing. How do I start? Beyond me telling them that I do have your liturgy binder, many sewed in common house, <laughs> what do you recommend a starting place to be for a mom who is totally new to bringing this into the home? Yeah, I, the way I started was I, had, I bought a couple volumes of Stories of the Saints. I kind of like did my little Emily book filter. I'm like, this is this is good quality stuff, good illustrations. I can read this enjoyably. Um, and it looks like it's really going to shape our family in good ways. And I started to just not in not every single page of the book, but just um, I I would open it every once in a while. And we would we would read about people and we would just share their stories. I have this rotating on the note of like embodying story and kind of having it really shape your life. I 
I assigned at one point each of the days of the week to a different type of story or poetry at our breakfast table. And so reading a saint story was just, I think, um, yep, on, I've got my little chart up there. It was myth, mystic, Monday, like monastic, all of that. So like, <laughs> we would either read a myth or we would read about a saint. And so that's just, just the same thing. Monastic myth, Monday. <laughs> I love alliteration. That's great. So, yeah, they're all alliterative. <laughs> you just screamed mother teacher so hard. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. No, I think that's so great. I mean, I was just joking the other day that I can turn anything into a beautiful printable. So like, I'm just happy to make any sort of chart for the week, anything like I can fix my whole life with a pretty printable on the wall. Absolutely. Um, no, I love that. And I love that it's so one, I love that it is like an easy, practical takeaway step if you want to engage with these ideas, but also it's nascent. It's building out an atmosphere in your home of a repeated habit or practice of engaging with the ideas of something like the life of the saints or the church year, whatever it is. Um, and we know that we are persons. And actually, if you are going to come along on this adventure through the wardrobe, you yourself are going to have to change. Yeah. That is one of the biggest yeah. things that happen once you get on the other side is you realize, oh, I am not rightly ordered. I, what I want for my children is actually what's also best for me. And so I will need to change the course of our home in a couple of different ways here. Um, now, as we close out here, I would love to know, Emily, what are some of your family's favorite stories? We talked about Narnia enough. I'll skip over that one. Um, we've been really into <laughs> the Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson lately. Yeah. Um, we started listening mm -hmm. to them on audiobook. It was my son was like really not into audiobooks. He was like three or four at the time, and he would scream when we put them on. But we put on this, and it, it sucked. And so we're actually kind of like re-listening to them now. Um, and so I love the Rabbit Room and, and everything that they put out. Another favorite has been Caddy Woodlong by Carol Riri, I think that's how you say the middle name, uh, Brink. And Caddy okay. is a lot like the Little House books. She is, um, it's a true story. She lived in Wisconsin during the pioneer days. And when it was pitched to me, the person said, I, I like it better than Little House. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to read this. And I think I do wow. too. Okay. It, it sparkles with like virtue and adventure. And it's like Caddy herself is such a, such a quirky, but like, delightful character so I commend that to everybody um and then mm -hmm. also near and dear to my heart on the, and the fairy tale um train is the silver trumpet by Owen Barfield actually this is the book that I went to autumn because it is so hard to find mm -hmm. it's print, but I so think that if we, if, if we spread the word we can bring it back into print we just have to find the right people that will produce this book and so Bar Barfield for those that don't know he was a friend of Lewis um and he this is the one and only fairy tale that he wrote but it's it's become a really really fun part of our family culture didn't you tell me that lucy barfield is the lucy that the line which the wardrobe is wardrobe is dedicated to yes yeah right? so barfield's yeah. Okay. daughter lucy lewis was her yeah. grand or uh, her godfather yeah godfather so. right yeah yeah that's awesome. No, the Silver Trumpet was wonderful. We did. We I was so scared to mail it back to you. I was like, what if it gets lost in the mail? Because this book is so hard to find, particularly a beautiful version of it. That's one particular hang up for me yes. as I'm looking for yes. used books, as I also want yes. them to be beautifully bound. Um, I do think there's a place called, I think it's Smigden Press, where you can put requests in for them to bring yeah. books back. There's someone doing that. Or maybe it's New Hope or New Roman Press, something like that. But I think you and I should hit them up and we should we try to get... Garfield's trumpet because it was wonderful. It was really, really good. I'm glad yeah, you mentioned that one. I wondered if it would come up. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> really, thank you. 
so much for joining me to talk about story. Um, everyone else, I'm going to include in the episode notes today, which you can access just on the website or through your podcast app, um, places where you can read more of Emily's work. Um, a little bit about her bio. Hopefully we will be able to hear from her again or maybe find that she now has an online home where she is putting out her lovely ideas. Um, but otherwise, if you would like to hear more of Emily, you can come find her in Common House. It feels weird to like pitch Common House for your resource, but it is your liturgy finder. Like, so. Where can people find me online? Common House. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I really do have this like, secret society of the most like just wise, intellectual, interesting, loving women, and they are sharing some really good ideas in there. It is another level. Um, but we would love to have you join us. So anyways, Emily, thank you again. This has been a delight. I'm so grateful you came on. Yeah, so glad to be here, Autumn. Thank you. And everyone else, we'll see you in two weeks.